0: Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give to RUF.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. I'm going to read these verses and we'll get started. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, that word is also the word tabernacle if you're familiar with it, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them. When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. It shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood. Throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He shall flay the burnt offering, cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, and the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word, it feels bizarre, it feels foreign to us, but I pray that we would find ourselves meditating in your word and that your spirit would teach us the truths about how we relate to you and you relate to us and we would see the beauty of your love even in something that seems so inaccessible from our place in history. Father God, we need you to open up and teach our hearts to be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so to kind of get into what this is about, Uh, I want to know, so we're young parents in Menlo Park. We have 13-year-olds and 11-year-olds, and it was two years ago, we had a nine-year-old in our minivan, not one of ours, but another nine-year-old in the minivan, Uh, picked her up for soccer practice, and she was all out of breath, and we're like, where are you coming from? She's like, oh, I just came from karate. We're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy, and she goes, yeah, and I had Girl Scouts before that. And we're like, why are you going to Girl Scouts? This is nine years old. Why are you going to Girl Scouts and then karate and then soccer practice? Without a smirk on her face, deadpan, being dead serious. She goes, it's going to look good on my college application. Uh Wow. So, you know, being around College Campus, our girls have thought, mostly because they like y'all so much, um, they're like, I want to go to Stanford. I want to go to Stanford. And maybe you remember, if some of you, like, at a young age thought, I really want to go to Stanford, you have this nostalgic, warm, fuzzy feeling about what it means to go to Stanford. At this point, my children think, oh, the way you get to go to Stanford is you should like being outside and going to sporting events and Koopa Cafe, and then you just get to go to Stanford. That's all that's required. (laughs) And uh, that's all it takes to go to Alabama, but it <laughs> takes a little bit more to go to Stanford. Because um, what happens is when you set your mind on a school like Stanford is at some point you become aware of, here are all the things you have to do to get here. And what you find out is you do have to start pretty early. Um, the pro- application process extends far beyond the simple formal application process, Right. There's a big list of things you have to do to be here. I say that to kind of remind you of that, of like, oh yeah, there's all this stuff you have to do to get here. So that you would think and understand kind of what Leviticus is teaching us in really actually the first five chapters, because the first five chapters, or sorry, the first seven chapters are about five different sacrifices that are all very similar, and they have a lot of detail and a lot of structure, is God is saying, these are all the things that have to happen for you to be with me. It's actually taking, this is a chance to take your relationship with God wherever it is, out of the realm of kind of paganistic sentimentality. And what I mean by paganistic is if you think the main thing to have a relationship with God is to kind of, kind of hope he's good and try to be a nice person and maybe things will go right for me. And that's functionally what you think of a relationship with God, how it actually functions in your life. That's, that's closer to paganism than to Christianity. Um, uh, and it's kind of sentimentality, right? Like there's, there's this kind of this vague idea of this God thing. I kind of tell myself he's nice. I get around other people that also reinforce the fact, the idea that he's nice. And then I try to be nice and hopefully things work out for me. Um, that's kind of like how my children think about getting into Stanford. This is here are all the things that have to happen for you, for us, to be with God. Uh, Before we get into it, this is what I said last week, and this really covers, especially these first, uh, really kind of in some ways the first 16 chapters of Leviticus, is these are symbols. The Bible all throughout Scripture talks about the fact that these are symbols. And what symbols do is they reveal reality, but what symbols are not is they are not reality. And what symbols do when you ritually engage in them, right, these are rituals, is they prepare you and teach you how to live in the reality that they're signifying for you. Now let me, if that sounds a little bit too abstract, let me give you an example. I watched a Sports Center segment, it came on maybe two years ago, about Stanford quarterbacks using VR. Have y'all, did y'all, has anybody seen this? Y'all remember this? It was pretty cool. Um, I think it was when Kevin Hogan was the quarterback. So they have a 360 degree camera, right, record plays on the practice field with defenders and receivers and everything. And they would put the VR thing on Hogan in an empty room, and he would watch the plays unfold and adjust to them in the room, like virtual reality works. Now, here's the thing. The whole game's projected on the headset. He can look up, he can look down, he can look all the way around, all that kind of stuff. When he's doing that, is he looking at real receivers? answer is yes and no, right? Yes, they're real receivers, but actually, no, they're images of real receivers, And so what did it do is it allowed him to engage images of reality, right, in order to train him for how to engage actual reality. Does that make sense? And he did it habitually because he had to do it habitually to learn, right? That's the book of Leviticus. Hebrews 9.23 says these are facsimiles or copies of the heavenly real things. And so when you go through these habits, it prepares you to understand what it's like to have a relationship with God. Just like dodging a defender while you're wearing a VR headset doesn't mean you really dodge a defender, but it absolutely does prepare you for the real world of dealing with defenders. The writer of Hebrews is clear, actually over and over again, uh, and if you're reading Leviticus or going through it, you should read Hebrews because it's a commentary on Leviticus. The writer of Hebrews is clear. These sacrifices don't actually carry away sin, but they prepare you to understand and engage the one who does. Does that make sense? Um, first seven chapters of Leviticus go through painstaking detail of five different types of sacrifices. They all are slightly different in what they teach us, but they have some major overlapping themes. We're going to address the first one today because it captures a lot of the biggest themes. And here's the main point. The main point is this. Sacrifice is at the heart of relationship with God. Nothing else. Even if you don't even know how to explore that statement, that's carry that away. The main point is, Sacrifice is at the heart of relationship with God. Trying to be good and hoping things go well for you is at the heart of paganism. Sacrifice is at the heart of relationship with God. And if you feel like, okay, sacrifice, religious term, I have a vague sense of what it is, maybe it feels foreign or ancient or archaic to you, Uh, and maybe you think like, I don't know how to connect that and make that the central thing in kind of my relationship with God. Um, I, I would invite you just to consider for a moment that actually sacrifice is not very foreign to your experience and in fact i think the idea of sacrifice is so fundamental to kind of everyday human experience that the way we relate to it the reason it doesn't come on our radar a lot and think like oh yeah sacrifice that's kind of a main thing for me all the time is that it's actually sacrifice is more like breathing it's so fundamental to what we're doing all the time that we only ever think about it if it becomes hard and here's what I mean by this. Sacrifice is the most powerful human-lived experience. It's what a lot of our, the most compelling stories are about, right? Uh, something in us testifies to us when we see it. What sacrifice is, is it's giving up something of value for the sake of someone else. That's what it is. It's giving up something of value for the sake of someone else. So they're exalted, beautiful, form, big forms of sacrifice, like a soldier dying in war, right? Uh, like an organ donor giving up an organ, But when a parent pays for college, that's sacrifice, right? When someone picks up your tab, that's sacrifice. When you have a midterm, but a friend needs to talk, that's sacrifice. You give up something valuable, the time studying for your midterm, for the sake of someone else. Uh, When you receive help from someone else, you're on the receiving end of sacrifice. This is actually something that's going on all the... It's kind of actually the basis of economics in some ways, and economics is really the study of decision making I actually think sacrifice is so common that's actually why you don't think about it and the reality is uh, all relationships are transactional and when we talk about transactional relationships we use it in a pejorative way but we only, transactionals are only, relationships are only spoken of in a pejorative way to be transactional when it's done in self interest you know what I mean when you, when you think oh I pursue this person because of what they can do for me um, and I end the relationship when the cost to me is greater than the benefit I receive. And that's a narcissistic transactional relationship. That's the one we all struggle with being kind of present in a networking culture, right? But there's also the kind of relationship in which you sacrifice not for yourself, but actually for the well-being of others. In other words, you're relating to them, giving things up for their well-being, not for what you can get out of it. The cost to you is great, but the benefit to them is greater, and that's why you do that. That's actually also a transactional relationship, but we don't use that word because that word feels crass in that setting, right? We, instead, we use words like, that's called being a friend, or that's called a sacrifice, or that's called love, right? And those terms honor the relationship better if that's the form of the transaction, right? Sacrifice is at the heart of a relationship with God. And in this scene, what God is doing is He's formalizing a ritual in order to take the Israelites and us through the sacrificial nature of a relationship with God. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through it frame by frame and ask, what would a worshiper sense or feel as they experience these movements? Kind of alluded to that last week. And what are we supposed to learn by thinking about what they experienced? That's my question. Now, what's going on in the text but what did the person go, moving through these rituals feel, sense, experience? Um, and I would say if, if you're ever in that place where you want the things in your head to get into your heart, I think meditating through these rituals, practices, and actually thinking about the experience of the original worshipers is something will do that. I think that's what Leviticus is here for. Hopefully, talking through it tonight will help you understand what I mean by that. So let's start. It starts outside of the tent of meeting, right? Spoke to Moses at the tent of meeting. He shall bring the sacrifice to the tent of meeting. Here's what you need to know. That that's really uh, those are loaded terms. This idea of tent of meeting. It's called the tabernacle. It symbolized God's presence. If you had read Exodus before this, the book right before this, the end of Exodus has very extensive design details for the tent of meeting. It's a very specific structure that God gave Israel, saying, I want you to build it exactly this way. And they had this sense in Israel's camp that God talked about that there's outside the camp, inside the camp, inside the courtyard of the tabernacle, inside the tabernacle, inside the Holy of Holies. And there are these levels of kind of nearness to this central experience in the tent. And the reason God had them set up that tent is because he wanted them to experience the Holy of Holies symbolize or signified the presence of God. And what he then did is set up these rituals for if you're far away from God, that you would have to go through to be close to God. So all the rituals to go from outside of the camp, to inside the camp, to inside the courtyard, to the tent of meeting, are supposed to be rituals that as you go through them, what you're learning is, Things have to happen for me to be close with God. It's that simple. Moving towards the tent is moving towards God. So that's why he sets up a, a symbolic place so that it begin, they begin, that begins to register with him. Moving towards that, the feelings I have and the requirements required of me to get there is going to feel like what it feels like to be near to God. Okay. So then the next thing is, is the offering itself. He's to offer a burnt offering from the herd, a male without blemish. So that's the where. What do you bring on your way? A male without blemish. Like we said earlier, you have to give things up to experience relationship. Uh, To get close to anybody requires that you give things up. To get close to your Greek organization, you have to give up time with others. To get close to a romantic partner, you have to give up seeking others. This is actually the reality that catches people off guard at Stanford because we, everybody wrestles with loneliness for different reasons, but sometimes people get hit with loneliness but never connected the dots that if you spend all your time working and don't spend time in the habits of friendship, you can't have much in the way of meaningful friendship. Right? This hits home sometimes at Stanford. Like, oh, I have to sacrifice some things to make friends here. Um, and here's the thing about this kind of male without blemish thing. When you give up one thing for something else, it tells you about the level of significance of that something else. When you give up one thing for something else, it tells you about the level of significance of that something else. The experience of indecision is when you feel like two things are very close in value to you, right? The value of what you sacrifice tells you about the significance of the relationship you sacrifice it for. So the lesson here is like, all right, I want to be near to God. But to come close to God will cost you a male from your flock without blemish. What does that mean? That's the most valuable animal in your flock for breeding purposes, right? That's your stud. And, and I mean that in a technical term, not a... <laughs> you know what that means, right? Um, it's their most valuable asset in their flock. And actually what's cool, if you go through and read the rest of chapter 1, the reason I didn't read it is it repeats this ritual over and over again for different economic classes. So this one first is offered for wealthy people. They have bulls. The next one is like God recognizing that not everybody can bring a pool. He says, some of you, what's expensive for you is a goat. Some of you, what's expensive for you is birds. So the point is, it's not that it has to be expensive, but that it's expensive for you. There's actually socioeconomic... um, uh, uh, accommodations all throughout the sacrifices. But the over because the overall point is this. To get close to God, you have to give up your most valuable stuff. This is God saying, I am your most important. And you will know this not by saying it, but by giving up your most important. Right? It's one thing to say it. It's one thing to do it. So they're moving toward God. And they realize it's going to cost them their most important, most valuable things. And then the next thing is this, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So now what happens? Right? What do I do? And this is when it gets really intense. The one who wanted to be close to God had to put their hand on the animal being offered. And we talked about this briefly last week. This conveyed some sense of me and the animal are connected, right? This is an act of intimacy. They're identified with one another. The verse says the animal shall be accepted in place for him, the worshiper. Later in Leviticus 16, on a a, a ritual called the Day of Atonement, you actually see the priest put his hands on the animal and confess sins. And that was an acted out sermon illustration teaching them this point, that what happened in that hand when that hand touched the head of the animal is it signified a transfer. And that's not altogether foreign to us either. A lot of these things feel foreign until you think about our lived out experience today and you realize actually they're very mundane. When two people strike a deal, I sold a Honda Odyssey a year and a half ago. When I sold a Honda Odyssey, we shook hands. You know what? Shaking hands signified that the car that was mine is now yours, and the cash that is yours is now mine. Signifies a transfer. This is not uncommon to us. And in that situation, we're talking about material and financial assets. In this situation, we're talking about a transfer of guilt, of moral assets. The worshiper's guilt before God is transferred to the animal. Then what happens? Then he shall kill the bull and it shall and, uh, before the Lord. And Aaron's sons and the priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He'll flay the burnt offering, cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron shall put the fire on the altar and arrange wood. And they shall arrange pieces, the head, the fat, the wood, uh, and the wood that's on it on the fire on the altar, its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priests shall burn all of it on the altar." animals killed and blood to them it signifies exactly what it signifies for us today it's a symbol for life we still say things like their blood is on your hands things like that so they use the term to refer to life and the worship kills the animal and the priest splashes blood all over the place so i wish i kind of wish i was like a cool enough preacher to have brought corn syrup And like preached with like corn syrup all the way down my arms and all over my clothes. Because that's what their worship experience was like. Imagine what that would be like. If your pastor on Sunday preached and his hands were covered in blood when he was telling you about God's relationship with you. And his clothes had blood all over them. And there was blood on the stage. You're supposed to feel like, whoa, that's weird and bizarre. Especially when the thing that happened right before all that blood came out is you put your hand on the animal and he said this animal is received on your behalf in your place right again that's why what I hope happens is we have a little bit of imagination for the worshiper experienced right and to add to the visceral experience blood is wiped everywhere it's everywhere it's graphic it feels barbaric and excessive I think it's supposed to feel that way It's supposed to feel unruly. It's supposed to feel shocking. It's supposed to make us uncomfortable. That's the right, if you're like, this is uncomfortable, that's right. Because everywhere you look is a reminder of the death of the animal. In addition to that, this is the only sacrifice that's completely consumed by fire. Other sacrifices, for different reasons, are actually portions of it are saved, portions of it are eaten, things like that. But what's happened here? as they experienced, that it is costly, deadly, and total, this kind of sacrifice. So even with a limited context, even with a very limited theology, an Israelite would experience, keenly experience, I cannot be near to God unless a substitute carries off all about me that disqualifies me. I cannot have peace, I cannot have hope unless everything that disqualifies me from presence with God is taken away. For me to be close to God, to be with God, something has to die in my place. Something must die that carries off all the things that make me unfit for His presence. Now, fitness for presence is also not a foreign idea. Here we're talking about the realm of moral accounting are we morally fit for God's presence? But again, it's not a new idea. If, if I told you, hey, tomorrow night you're invited to have dinner with the Queen of England, you know what you would do intuitively? You would wash away all that disqualifies you from being fit from her presence. It's called showering <laughs> and grooming. You would take away from yourself, and then you would cover yourself with clothes that are fit for her presence. You intuitively do this. It's the exact same thing. In that situation, we're talking about making yourself socially fit. You would change the way you talk, right, to address her and what you choose to talk about. You would make yourself socially fit. We're talking about moral fitness in God's presence because he's the holy and good God who made a beautiful world and who loves life. And so it's the moral realities about our hearts that make us unfit for his presence that have to be dealt with for us to be with him. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do if we think about what what that Israelite went through? And the first thing I'll say this, and this is, I know many of us in this room, myself included, if you're a Christian who struggles with apathy, you've, you've walked into this identity and you get in these places where you lack strong feelings, right? Positive or negative toward God. Sometimes what's more alarming is to just not have much feeling at all. Positive or negative toward God. And what this visceral and concrete image is supposed to do is to shake us awake. Because there's blood everywhere. And there's a dead animal. And it's the only way you can come into presence with God. So if God has gotten soft and fuzzy and meaningless and sentimental for you, this image is set before you to restore the reality and the gravity of doing business with God. If you, CIP is this actual medical condition called congenital insensitivity to pain. And it's deadly, not because it kills people, but because it prevents people from feeling what can kill them. And the loving thing to do to someone who can't feel pain is to tell them their hand is on the stove. This scene, if it unnerves you, that's its intent, is to shake us. God takes all sin, any sin, really, really seriously. If you think, I'm uncomfortable with that, that's the appropriate response. Nothing can be right between us and God, no matter what we feel about our sin, unless death occurs. It shakes us out of taking our sin lightly. It's a visceral and tactile reality that says it actually doesn't matter what you feel about your sin. It's not your feeling that determines how God feels about it. This tells you how God feels about it. This death objectively tells us how much God hates our indifference towards people, which we think is a little thing, right? Our greed, which is like not that bad and even drives the economy makes us job creators. This shows us what God thinks about greed. That we don't feel that strongly about it. That it's nasty, that it has to be dealt with, that it's no light matter to Him, regardless of how we feel. It's to shake us alive. Now, if it's the moral accounting that also bugs us, right? I don't like this God that has all this blood involved in this immoral accounting. I, I'm not a monster like that. they are monsters. There are monsters, in the world, But most of us are not one. And first of all, let me say this. Everyone here believes in moral accounting. That's not, that's not an acceptable objection to Christianity because everyone believes in it. The thing that the crazy left, whether it's spiritual or political, and the crazy right, whether it's religious or political, all have in common is they both think there's right and wrong and wrong has to be dealt with. Yes, we all believe in this. It's called justice. The only question is, who's justice and how will it be administered? Well, the, the thing is, they're still debating on whose justice, but the thing that everybody agrees on is how it should be administered. Everybody agrees on the far left and on the far right. We should be shame. We should shame and reject the people who bring the wrong in. Right? Well, let's talk about God's justice. Sin is anything that breaks the beauty of this world. This is God's world. He made it. He made it for life and for beauty. So anything that defrauds any human in any way, because they're made in His image, dishonors the one who made us. What our sin does is it steals life from the world. And life is much more than biological processes. Life in the Bible is full living for everyone. Fullness, joy, blessedness, happy, peace, hope. The thing we all want all the time, Christian or not. So anything that takes that out of the world, God hates. And it robs the world of life. And this is what God is telling us. That when we defraud a roommate by leaving them out, when we cheat or lie, when, a few, when we press a few clicks of the button and send a signal through the internet, there's demand for more women and more men to be exploited through pornography. When anger motivates us, when apathy prevents us from helping, when selfishness and self-seeking drive us, we are breaking God's beauty. And God hates it. And we are robbing life from the world. And what he's telling us, this is the way one friend described it, is life can only be paid for in its own currency. And we think, I've read, y'all familiar with Larry Nassar, the OBGYN who assaulted all these gymnasts for, year, for decades? I've been reading a lot about that. And what we think is, okay, they're monsters. He is a monster. That's true. Um, but then there are me's. Then there are us's. And we're not monsters. But to create those categories and to treat people, uh, and to, to kind of treat ourselves differently before God is to misunderstand the nature of sin. Because the difference between Larry Nasser and me is the difference between an acorn and an oak tree. It's time and circumstances. The difference between monsters and the non-monsters is time and circumstances. The great evil in his heart didn't start when he first assaulted a woman. That's not when it started. Its origin was the seemingly innocent but deadly thing in his heart that said this, doing the things I want to do for me because they make me happy is an absolutely fine way of going through life. That's where it started. Is that in you? It's in me. It's dangerous. We've seen what it can do given the right time and circumstances. Sin is something that is the fruit, the natural outworking of a disposition. We have, a, we have this inborn disposition to love and trust ourselves above all else and an undeniable instinct to center our lives and hearts and meaning on anything but God. And we think, you know what is fine? A little bit of self-absorption because it's just a little. Just a little self-obsession, a little unforgiveness, a little bit of anger, a little bit of materialism, a little using of other people for sexual gratification, a little greed, a little bitterness, a little elitism, a little indifference, a little laziness, a little racism, a little indulgence. It's all just a little and a little is okay, right? That's how we feel. That's how we operate. But sin like cancer is living and active. You give it the right circumstances. Cancer is just like an acorn. The only difference between an acorn and an oak tree time and circumstances. The seed of all evil is in us. And if you've ever known someone closely who's had cancer, how much cancer is too much? One cell is too much, isn't it? This is actually why one of the marks of beginning of maturity and self-understanding and wisdom is that when you hear about the worst things in the world, you look at it and you know, that is in me. It could be there. And the only difference between me and them is not that I'm a better type of person. It's just circumstances. And you realize that the sliding scale of morality that we're grading ourselves on is nonsense because the stuff out there is in me. How much cancer is too much? One cell is too much. From God's perspective, who built an amazing world and placed incredible, beautiful people in it? For the, ten- for the purpose of flourishing and mutual serving and loving humanity. How many cancerous cells of beauty-breaking me-sitterness is too much? One is too much. So it has to be dealt with. Our sin has to be dealt with. And until we see our sin as the barrier between us and the joy of life with God, then know- and knowing love in the person of Jesus... If we, we'll have no real sense of what it means to love Jesus and what He's done for us. Hebrews 10 says this about Leviticus. These laws are a shadow of the good and heavenly things to come, of the real reality. They, this is what the writer of Hebrews, these sacrifices that were offered never make perfect those who are drawn near. They don't affect what they're talking about. They were a reminder of sin. But the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin Christ offered once as a single sacrifice for sins does. And where there's forgiveness, there's no more offering for any sin. That's why we don't do these sacrifices anymore. So now you have confidence to draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Not because you've offered a worthy sacrifice to God, but Jesus has offered himself in our place. The difference between a Christian and a religious person is you always hear a religious person talk about what they need to do better. You hear a Christian talk about Jesus. If you are tired of trying to make all the right commitments and sacrifices for God so that He will like you enough and you don't have to be afraid, if you are tired of that dynamic, give up and lean on Jesus. He will do the work. He has done the work. His blood has been shed for you. The worshiper would sense and feel their experience at the end of this passage, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. They would think, because the lamb, the Lord is pleased with me. Because the lamb, the Lord is pleased with me. They wouldn't think, because I had a lot of quiet times this week, the Lord is pleased with me. That's not how they would think at the end of this, would they? They wouldn't think, because I gave money, because I went on a mission trip, because I went to RUF, because I'm a leader, the Lord is pleased with me. They would think because of the Lamb, the Lord is pleased with me. I read. Um, if you haven't read Rachel Den Hollander's um, victim statement from this trial, I'm just going to read a really short from that, and then we'll close and we'll pray. But this is what she said to that mon- that guy, that monster. He said, you've become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires. A man defined by his daily choices to repeatedly feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you've spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it's on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you had read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done and all of its utter depravity and its horror without mitigation and without excuse and without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment, where all of God's wrath and His eternal terror is poured out on men like you. And should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what will make the gospel of Jesus Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should have ever been found. And it will be there for you. When the worshiper leaves this scene, all they could sense and feel is, my sin is great but my God's mercy and my God's grace is greater. Let's pray.